Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Daniel, chapter 3, verses 14 through 29. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their ornaments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the, sit, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire come, came, had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their house laid in ruins, for there is no other god who is able to rescue us. In this way. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Marcella, for reading that story. It's quite a story, isn't it? This fall, we are in a series on the book of Daniel. And let me review uh, why, a little bit of context here. The book of Daniel is a book written during an exile for people in exile. An exile is someone who is living in a place that's not their homeland. 
not their native country. And this is the context for the book of Daniel. Uh, it covers events from the 6th century BC, when Judah and Jerusalem were conquered by the great empire Babylon and the king of that empire, Nebuchadnezzar. In that exile, Daniel, along with uh, many thousands of Jewish people, were taken from their home into the land of Babylon. So Daniel and his three friends that we just read about, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were forced into Babylonian training school to serve the king, to serve his nation, to serve the empire of Babylon. The entire purpose and the entire goal of that training was to eradicate their faith and their entire way of life that grew out of that faith. But the story of Daniel is this. It's about how instead of eradicating their faith, the faith of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the exile actually strengthened their faith in God and their witness for him. And this is why Daniel is such an important book for us. Exile meant uh, for Daniel, for his uh, three friends, it meant everything that was normal in their life was gone. Everything was affected. Daniel and his friends lost all their normal structures for worship. Uh, there was no temple anymore. So have we. Daniel and his friends were thrust into a political situation where the pressure to compromise, the pressure to fear, was great. So were we. Daniel and his friends experienced a crucible of faith, of personal faith. Their faith was tested in every way possible, mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, and so is ours in our time of exile. The best word that I can think of, uh, this passage really made me uh, remember this word and think about this word. To describe everything that's going on in our lives right now is the word crucible. Merriam-Webster says literally, what is a crucible? It's a vessel used to burn something with fire at a high temperature. But we use this word figuratively as well. A crucible is a place or a situation in which concentrated forces interact to cause or influence change or development. <laughs> I can't think of a better word to describe what we're all living through right now. I found a picture of a crucible, so you can have this picture in your mind. This is a literal crucible. Let's see if we can get that slide up. There it is. <laughs> burning hot. You place something in that burning hot crucible, that little bowl in the fire, and it changes. It develops into something. The message of Daniel is that the experience of exile is a crucible, but God is in control over and is at work in the exile. He's at work in the crucible, the fire of exile that seems like it might consume our faith, instead can strengthen and refine our faith. How is this possible? That is the question. When you are there in the crucible, in the fire, it seems like all you can do is survive. And it can feel like your faith is being tested, being consumed in ways that you've never experienced. This story, the story of the fiery furnace, shows us how. There are three things it shows us about living in a time of exile. And we're going to look at each one of those things 
as we walk through this story. First, the pressure to worship is intense. Secondly, the nature of our faith is revealed in these times. And thirdly, the promises of God can be our hope, even in the fire. First, the pressure to worship is intense. First thing that this story teaches us is that in exile, the pressure to worship is intense. It's turned up. So first, let's look at the story, and then let me explain what I mean by that. So the story, the text, we need to look back before the part that we read. That was the most intense part. That's when the fire really got turned up. But how did it get there? Back in chapter 3, verse 1, we read that King Nebuchadnezzar made this giant golden statue, 90 feet high. He set it up, and then he sent word to all his officials who were gathered throughout his empire to come to the dedication ceremony for this statue. So everybody comes, it says they're standing there, and they go, okay, now what? And a herald appears and proclaims. The music kicks in, you know, the beat drops. And in verse 5, it says, you are to all fall face down and worship the gold statue that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Oh, and one little thing, just so you know, whoever does not fall down and worship will be immediately thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. That is pretty intense. Worship the statue or die. So everyone does it, it says. People from every nation and language bearing beliefs in gods, they say, okay, um, what's one more God? Or what, what's, what's one more image in my life? So that everybody worships and bows down, but at least three people don't. And back in chapter 3, verse 8, we see that some of these officials noticed these three people who did not. And they decide to tattle on them, to tell on them. They're probably jealous of their position. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had risen to uh, great levels in the Babylonian government. So some people come and say, O King Nebuchadnezzar, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego have ignored you, the king. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold in statue that you have set up. So then we come to our passage that we read in verse 13. In a furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring these three men before him. And he says, is it true? I'll give you one more chance. Worship the statue or be thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. So that is the pressure, the pressure on these men to fall down and worship the statue was intense. It doesn't get any more intense than this. It was a matter of life and death. And this is the first thing this passage shows us about life in exile and the experience of the crucible is that we will feel intense pressure to worship whatever we think will get us through. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could have thought, I will, I'll, just, I'll just bow down to this. I won't worship in my heart, but I'll just do what everybody else is doing. My life depends on it. The pressure was great, but they decided to stand. Now, let me unpack this and explain what I mean when I say the pressure to worship is intense. I need to do a very quick summary of the Bible's teaching on worship. Worship in the Bible, it's not uh, about singing. It's not about a, a Sunday weekly gathering. Worship in the Bible is not really something we do, an action we do. It's what is at the core of everything we do. That's worship. So first, we're going to walk through these um, points, and we'll put them up on the slide. 
the Bible says every person worships. We don't choose if we worship. Every person does choose what we worship. Everyone has a controlling center. It's what we value. It's what we seek. It's what we serve before anything else. And when you dig down deep into the core of what drives us, what you will find there is worship. We were made to worship God. This is why the very first commandment is what? You shall have no other gods before me. And that's what was at stake in this story. That's the first commandment because obeying all the other commandments stem from this first one. Everything hinges on worship. So every person worships. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego saw this was just, uh, just as true in Babylon as back home in Jerusalem. In Babylon, they were driven by worship. Nebuchadnezzar was driven uh, by worship. Every person worships. Second point, every person and every culture or nation sets up gods to replace the God who made us. The most repeated word in this story, if you look at this, it, it's translated in English, set up. It's repeated 10 times in this chapter, set up, set up. When a biblical author repeats something 10 times, they're trying to shout at us. They're saying, look at this. This is emphasis. Here are some examples of where it appears. It says, Nebuchadnezzar set it up. He set it up, verse 1. Verse 7, they all worshiped the statue he had set up. Verse 18, it says, no, we did not worship the statue you set up. What is this story trying to shout at us? It's this. With a bit of satire, it's painting a pretty ridiculous picture. People are worshiping something set up. It's man-made. They are setting this up. Nebuchadnezzar is setting this up, and people are worshiping it. It sounds kind of absurd at first, and the picture is meant to be. But every person and every culture does this. We all set up gods to replace God. We take good things things God has created, and make them into ultimate things, objects of worship. Romans 1 says this is the human condition. We exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve what has been created instead of the Creator, who is praised forever. Amen. Romans 1, 25. What exactly, you might be wondering uh, as you read this, what is the, the statue represent that Nebuchadnezzar set up. The story, you know, it never really tells us directly. Is it a god? A specific god of Babylon? Is it Nebuchadnezzar? Is it many gods all in one? Or does it really stand for Babylon, the nation, the empire? We saw last week Nebuchadnezzar had a dream about uh, a statue with a head of gold. And in that dream, the, the statue was destroyed by a stone. And here we see him saying, oh yeah, that, that dream, yeah, I think I got the point of it. No. <laughs> he ended up creating an entire statue of gold. I'm not just the head of gold. I'm the entire statue of gold. What does the statue stand for? It seems like it stands for all of these things. Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, and the gods of Nebuchadnezzar. All in one, it stands for political power, for control, for approval and glory, for Nebuchadnezzar's glory, and for the comfort of the Babylonian dream. If you worship and worship this statue, you can have the Babylonian dream. It's all in one. And so the pressure to worship, it comes from within us. It's how we're made, always. It's hardwiring meant to lead us to God. The pressure to worship 
other gods is always around us, surrounding us. Every person and every culture seeks to replace the God who made us with gods we set up. Third point, we'll put it up on the screen. Every person worships, every person in culture sets up gods to replace God, but in exile. Here's the point I want to make. The pressure to worship, the pressure to set up gods in God's place is intense, and we feel it. Let me share an illustration. We have uh, an instant pot at home. It's, we use it to cook, one of those pressure cookers, and my wife got this uh, instant pot a few Christmases ago, and she's become a master of instant pot meals, and that's really helpful for us. We have a family of six, so we can, she can cook things uh, that normally would have taken six hours in the oven, some kind of roast or something like that, and it's ready in like 30 minutes. It's like magic. Like, how does this thing work? Well, the idea behind a, a pressure cooker is that in this pressurized environment, you can turn the heat up even higher. You can get the liquids, you can get everything, get the pressure all around it, and you can cook something faster in that intense environment. It's like it's basically like a crucible <laughs> that we saw with the top on it. Normal life, it's like being in an oven for six hours. There are pressures, there are challenges, there are steady challenges that hit us over time. Being in exile is like being in a pressure cooker it's intensified, it's concentrated in a short time, it's a crucible and a furnace, and that's what we are living in now, friends. Do you feel that? I know I do. The things that we have most valued and served and sought are lost. Many of them, or they are being threatened. We think we may lose them. They're not coming through for us. Things we have most feared, things we have dreaded, have happened or we fear that they will happen and it's paralyzing to us. And we are seeing maybe for the first time that these weren't just things to us. They were in fact gods that we had set up. They weren't just good things I wanted. They are things that I've worshiped. Control, comfort, jobs, security, things we run to, to escape from the crucible. They weren't just diversions. They're not just distractions. They are objects of worship. The intensity and the pressure of a time in exile reveals this to us, that these are gods I have set up, good things made into ultimate things. In this way, the pressure of exile, it can be a gift, friends. How? In that it intensifies the choice for us. What happens normally, uh, that's, uh, normally happens slowly and over time and gradually, that's just usually under the surface, is now happening rapidly above the surface. What am I worshiping? And the choice of who or what we worship is before us. It's undeniable. Do you know why Israel was sent to exile? Idolatry. Setting up gods in the place of God. Do you know what they were learning in exile, what these three men learned? The emptiness of idolatry. And so this passage is saying, don't worship the gods of Babylon. See them for what they are. They're just set up. They cannot come through for you. I want to share a quote from David Kinnaman and Mark Matlock and their great book, Faith for Exiles. They use uh, the word exile to describe our life in what they call the digital 
Babylon that we live in now, they say this about exile. There is beauty in exile. To live as God's people, to follow his son through the power of his spirit requires us to choose. Going along just won't do. The conditions of exile invite us each day to choose whom we will serve. The beauty of exile is that the choice is made clearer for us. That's what they're saying. There can be a beauty, and exile can be a gift. But at the same time, there will also be a cost for not bowing down to man-made idols and the gods of the culture. We see that in this passage. That was the pressure. So, a Christian, my Christian friends, to seek to hold on to worship of the God who made us in any culture, in any nation you live, there will be a cost for not bowing down to the man-made idols of that culture. Those things that look most impressive, most popular, that everybody is worshiping these things. Now, we do respect and we do celebrate aspects of the culture, but there will be times you are called to stand when everybody else is bowing down. And if that's not happening, we have to ask ourselves if we have caved into the pressure. So that's what happens when the pressure to worship is intense in our lives in the fire. Second point, the nature of our faith is revealed. When the pressure is turned up, we're running to look to something to worship, to save us, to get us through. The Bible says, in those times there is a gift because you get to see what you're worshiping. And at the same time, digging a little deeper, it says, in, the, in exile, in times of exile, the nature of our faith is revealed. This is the second thing this passage shows us that happens in exile, and this is what happens for these three men. In the intense pressure of exile to bow down and worship the statue facing the fiery furnace, this produces one of the most incredible, one of the most famous and moving professions, confessions of faith in all of the Bible in verses 16 through 18. And their faith and what they say shows us something so important about what genuine faith is the nature of genuine faith, something we need to see in this time. Getting this really is at the heart of the difference between a faith that is consumed in a crucible or a faith that is refined. Verse 13, let's talk about this. When Nebuchadnezzar heard they didn't bow down to his statue, he brought them in and he was in a furious rage. He was set on fire, but he still gave them a second chance. He really liked these guys. They were serving him well. And he says to them, is it true? Let's try again. Now, if you are ready, if you're ready now, uh, when you hear the, the sound of the horn and all these instruments to fall down and worship the image I've made, well and good. But if you don't, you will be immediately cast into the fiery furnace. And who is the God who can deliver you out of my hands, he says. And here is their confession of faith. Verse 16, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If it be so, some translations say, if the God we serve exists, then he can deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and can deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, if he doesn't, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. Do you see their confession of faith? They say, we don't need to answer you. 
about God's existence, he will answer you, O king. We have faith our God will answer you. We have faith our God can deliver us. We are trusting him to deliver us from you and from the furnace. But if he doesn't, we still trust him. We will still worship him and trust him alone. This is one of the clearest professions of genuine faith in all of the Bible, and it's amazing. Here is what it's saying. I'm going to put this up on the slide so you don't miss it. Genuine faith means serving and seeking God for God. Not serving and seeking God for what we get from Him, what we expect from Him, or as long as He comes through for us in the way that we demand Him to. When the crucible comes, when the fire comes in suffering and in hardship, the nature and the genuineness of our faith is revealed. Are we trusting God? Or are we trusting God plus what we think He needs to do for us? what we can get from him. When things are easy and comfortable, we often can't tell the difference. But when the fire is turned up, we can ask, what is my faith really and what am I really trusting? And this is what's being revealed to us in this time. 1 Peter chapter 1. In his letter, he says this, Now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. Peter says, This genuine faith that's tested by fire results in you finally getting what you want. you getting what you have been hoping God would do for you, for God coming through for you in the exact way that you demand him to. No. He says it may result in praise and glory and honor to God. That is a genuine faith. Faith that trusts God for God, that worships God for God, not for God plus this week I was talking with some friends about this. We were talking about our lives and what we've been experiencing this time. And this question came up. How do I know my faith is genuine? How do I hold to faith when it seems like God did not come through for me? When the thing we really wanted from God, the thing we really were praying for, it gets burned up in some kind of crucible in our life. It's devastating. It causes us to feel disillusioned. But... In those times, this story is telling us if our faith is burned up, then we can really see what our faith was really in. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They say, if God is God, if God exists, we trust him, period. Even if he doesn't deliver us, we will serve him alone. We trust God for God. We serve and seek God for God. For his glory, honor, and praise. That is what the Bible describes as genuine faith. This kind of faith can conquer and face anything. This kind of faith prepares us for any crucible. But it is only found, it is only forged in the crucible. You know, in the Bible, in Hebrews chapter 11, there is what we call the hall of faith. So many heroes of faith, their stories are um, recounted. And we read that and we go, wow, these, 
these people are the heroes. They are the heroes of the Bible. And there's a reference here to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in this story, Hebrews 11, uh, 32. Uh, he's going on, the author of Hebrews says, What can I say about all these heroes? That time is too short to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouth of lions, quenched the raging fire, escaped the edge of the sword, gained strength in weakness, became mighty in battle, and put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting release so that they might gain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings, scourgings, bombs, and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They died by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, destined, a destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. Did you, did you see the reference to these three men? Quenched the raging of the fire. There in that hall of faith, some people got delivered from the fire and some, it says, were stoned and sawed. And we say, I just want to be in group A, not in group B. But this list of the heroes of faith, the author of Hebrews says, these are all the heroes of faith. When God delivered and when he didn't. In 2 Timothy 4, chapter 18, or chapter 4, verse 18, when Paul was in prison facing death, like these three men, he said he was in prison, in, in a Roman prison, he says, the time of my departure has come. He was about to die. He knew his time was up. The last words he spoke or wrote before his final greetings in that letter were this, the Lord will rescue me from every evil work and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Underneath this genuine faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, genuine faith in the Bible is this. What Paul is describing here, that the greatest danger, the greatest threat, the greatest crucible of death is not a danger or a threat at all. In fact, it is the final rescue, the final deliverance when God brings me to the place of greatest safety in his heavenly kingdom. This kind of faith can face anything. This kind of faith can conquer anything. As we see from this story, who wins in this story? Nebuchadnezzar or these three men? Whether they lived or died, they would conquer Nebuchadnezzar. In his act of intense pressure to force them into worship, if they died, it would be their faith that stood clearly against his attempts to cause them to bow down. And if they lived as they did, then it was clear their faith won. Underneath that faith was that conviction that even the worst that can happen is the entrance into greatest safety. So in exile, the, 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 worship, the, the intensity of pressure to worship is intense. Secondly, the nature of our faith is revealed. And lastly, the promises of God can become our true hope in the fire. How can we have a faith in God like this, like these three men? Especially when we are in the fire. 
This passage doesn't only show us what faith is. It actually, this passage builds and forms our faith by showing us what God promises us and what God doesn't promise us when we are in the fire. Knowing this can mean the difference between a faith that is consumed and a faith that is refined when we are in exile, when we are in the crucible. Let's look at verses 24 through 29. And if you have your Bible, just open it up and you can follow along. Nebuchadnezzar, as these men are thrown into the fire, he's watching some kind of viewing window that he had, and he jumps up and he looks in and he says, Didn't we throw three men bound into the fire? Yes, of course, your majesty, they replied to the king. He said, Look, I see four men, not tied, walking around in the fire, unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. And so he approaches the door. He says, come out. And not a hair of their head was singed. Their robes were not even burnt. And not even any smell of fire was on them. And Nebuchadnezzar just says, okay, praise to your God. He rescued his servants who trusted in him. This story shows us what God promises us in the fire. And it shows us one very important thing that he doesn't promise us. So let's walk through these things. God doesn't promise us, we learn from this story, to deliver us from the fire. We already read this passage in our call to confession. But 1 Peter 4.12, in Peter's letter, which he says is written to people in the experience of exile, he says, Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal, ordeal comes among you to test you, as if something unusual were happening to you. God didn't rescue these three men from going into the fire. They went in. And God doesn't promise to deliver us from the fire of suffering, from the crucible of hardship in this life. The suffering in this life, the Bible says, is something we should expect. We live in a fallen and in a broken world. The suffering in this life the Bible can deliver us from is the suffering from believing that there is some way to get to a fireproof life, that God somehow promises us a fireproof life. If I do this, if I pray this, if I live right, then God will fireproof my life. The Bible says it's very important that you realize God doesn't promise you this. This is a fallen and a broken world. Secondly, God doesn't promise to deliver us from the fire, but God does promise to deliver us through the fire. I'm not sure about you, but if I was writing this story, the way that I would write it to go is that verse 19 instead would say, Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage. He gave orders to heat the furnace seven times more than was customary. He tied them up. His best soldiers took them to the furnace. And then God sent an angel right then to untie their ropes and lift them off into safety. And everybody could see that God came through. <laughs> like a James Bond movie. In, in those movies, James Bond, the, the saw, it always almost touches him, but it doesn't really get to him. The toxic vat of poison or whatever, he never quite gets into it, but just barely right before it, and then he figures a way to get out. That's how I would have written this story, but that's not how it goes. They went right into the fiery furnace. And the Bible says this is in part how God is rescuing us. Not from the fire, but through the fire. You know, if you want to know what you really worship, do you want to know? 
what really drives you, what you really serve. Do you want to know what your faith really is in, if it's genuine or not? Do you want to know that? Do you want to become a person of, of character, a person of great compassion for others? Do you want to develop the kind of life that glorifies God and shows him to other people? All those things happen here in this story. They didn't happen by God keeping them from the fire, but God taking them through the fire. It's the same for us. All these things we only learn through hardship and suffering. But thirdly, God promises to be with us in the fire. One commentator says, at first it looks here as if God were deserting his servants. He doesn't protect them from being thrown into the furnace. No help appears from heaven. But there's this fourth figure that appears in the fire. And Nebuchadnezzar says about this, he says, is it a man? He calls him a man first. No, he's a son of the gods. No, he's an angel. He doesn't know what to say about this person that he sees walking around with them in the fire. We look at the Old Testament, we see this is, this is the angel of the Lord, the very presence of God in human form. In the fire, God promises to be with us in the most personal way possible. For Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he appeared to them in human form with them in the fire. And this is the promise of Scripture. This is the promise of this passage, that no matter what you're facing, no matter what you go through, you will never be alone. No matter what your exile, no matter how intense the pressure you feel, no matter what's being revealed about your faith and trust right now, if you feel like you can't even see you can't even feel, you can't even experience what God is doing. God says, even in those moments, you are not alone. I am with you. We call this, uh, many scholars call this the Emmanuel principle in Scripture. God with us in the fire. Lastly, God doesn't promise to deliver, deliver us from the fire. He does promise to deliver us through the fire to be with us in the fire, and God promises to deliver us from the greatest fire. Last point. How do you believe all this when the fire comes, when you're living through things we are living through now? How do you believe it? How do you find hope in the crucible? The story points us to another time when God entered a furnace to deliver his people. The prophet Malachi talks about this, this day of a furnace in chapter 4. He says, a day is coming, Malachi says. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. I'll never forget when fires uh, ran through uh, the neighborhood north of our neighborhood where we lived in San Diego a number of years ago. I was a part of a crew to go help clean up and find anything we could find in one of these houses. And as I was walking through what used to be a house, I was just completely blown away. There was nothing left. Everything in this house was reduced to tiny little pieces of rubble like this. And we were just rummaging, rummaging, trying to see if anything was left. I didn't find anything. I couldn't even imagine how hot it had to be to reduce everything in a house to rubble like that. Malachi 4 is saying, a day is coming 
when everyone will have to pass through a furnace. And anything that is not rooted in genuine faith will be burned to rubble. Not a root or a branch will be left. But he says, you who fear my name, there's a different heat. The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. So on this day, there will be a furnace that leaves nothing but rubble, just rubble. Or there will be a sun that brings healing and laughter and leaves us frolicking. The Bible is this, friends. The Bible's message is this. It tells us this. No one can make it through that day, that furnace, except Jesus Christ. He was faithful. Only he can pass through the furnace of that day with his life entirely exposed by the fire. And the gospel is that he went into that greater furnace so we would not have to. So we could pass through not being burnt up, but being healed. And we can have hope no matter what we're going through, that if Jesus did that for us, if he went into the greater furnace of judgment for us, for our healing, he won't leave us in our smaller furnaces all alone. He won't let the crucible harm us, but he will use it for our good so that we can worship him and trust him and hope in him no matter what we are going through, no matter how intense the pressure, no matter how high the heat get tur gets turned up. Jesus went into the furnace, he went, and he was alone. The heat was turned up on him, greater than we will ever know as he experienced the great fire in our place for us so that we could experience the healing, the great healing God promises us that. In this crucible, in exile, what feels like will consume us, consume our faith, can actually strengthen and refine our faith. That is our great hope, friends. Hold on to that hope in the words of the hymn that we just sang. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace, God says, all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. May he make us more and more golden in all that we are facing. And let's pray that he would do that now. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we are going through a crucible. We know that you are above and over this, and you are at work in this, but sometimes we struggle to see it. The pressure to worship and look and set up other things in your place is great on us right now. And we feel that. We feel the fire revealing what's, what our faith is in. And I pray in this, in all that you are doing, that you would help refine our faith and give us solid ground for hope that you are with us, that we would sense your presence with us, and that we would be able to stand and we would come through with a stronger, deeper faith. We look to you. Only you can do this. Though we are weak, your grace is all-sufficient. Pour out your all-sufficient grace into our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.